Hidden Gems, Episode 36, Fun with Anthropomorphism. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. I'm Jason. And this is Bill. Welcome to our show. Yeah. Welcome back, everybody. Yeah. It feels like it's been a while since I've been in this room. Well, it has <laughs> been a little while. We've switched to our three-week schedule. It feels like it's a lot longer in between episodes. We're all so. a little rusty. If you want to hear how rusty, just listen to the end of the episode. It's been a while since we've done an outtake <laughs> section. But that Bill, was rough. Bill was all over the place. Chris was having another crack-up session trying to get the title out. Oh, man. Yeah. So you get a free pass with anthropomorphism. It's, it's Fun hard. with anthropomorphism. I mean, that's going to be one of our best episode titles ever. <laughs> Define anthropomorphism. <laughs> We're getting there. It wins on syllables, for sure. <laughs> all right, Bill. Talk, man. How's it been? What you been up to? Well, I just got back a few days ago from a trip to Washington, D.C. I went up almost exactly a year ago to move my daughter up there to start a new job. And she just moved in with her boyfriend this past month. So I went back in to help the moving again. I'm trying to think about how many times my parents moved me when I was a kid. And that was absolutely zero. So I was like, she should appreciate this. Uh, but we had some time to check out the monuments, check out some yeah. Smithsonian's. I took my 360 camera up there and I got some of them what I think are my best pictures that I've taken can't go it. anywhere without 360 oh my gosh camera. yes and everybody hates me for it my whole family <laughs> hates me for it but I still love it you but, ruined Origins with that 360 camera <laughs> <laughs> did you shove it in anybody's face uh, I'm just kidding it was awesome Bill was putting the camera behind the ice cream counter <laughs> he did we went through the Jenny's line and Bill talked to the person who was serving Bill and I ice cream he said hey can you take this wand with this camera on it and hold it underneath the display case? I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's an awesome picture. I will absolutely post it because Chris and I are looking through the other side of the case at the Jenny's ice cream with the ice cream cones in our hand. And this is an awesome picture. Well, I will say as much as a hard time as we gave you about it, you were like super popular with that thing. All through the uh-huh. convention hall and in mm. Barley's, you had a crowd of people wanting to take 360 selfies with the wand. I was doing the same thing in D.C. We went to a concert in the Sculpture Garden. There was a jazz flutist, which I've never heard of a jazz flutist. I was playing, and I can't remember her name. I think it's Ella something. And they're selling pitchers of beer and pitchers of sangria. We were having sangria, which was awesome, and had a big picnic out there and just hanging out. But I walked around with 360s and met a bunch of different people who were taking pictures in the sculpture garden. And it made really cool pictures with the different kind of sculptures that were out there. And then went out and stood by the stage, took some pictures. Oh, people, the people you meet. Oh, when you have a, you meet. When you have a weird thing that you're exactly. obsessed with. Hey, look at my toy. <laughs> you remind me of people who walk around with metal detectors or something? It's probably like, yeah. it's probably like the same thing. <laughs> it's a, that's, a, that's actually a really good comparison. <laughs> I think there's like this, this weird fascination with it, but uh-huh. the, the not really sure how to approach it yes i'm sure they were were indulging me i know i know anyway it's a good trip that's awesome cool how about you chris what do you want to talk about tonight well as fun as it was to hear about dc i was really hoping that you were going to talk a little bit about origins because we didn't get to hear about your origins experience although Uh we did talk a little bit about the 360 camera i know you had a good time Mm -hmm. but i cannot not talk about origins at least one more time because you and I had a very special experience at Origins. We did. Special's a good word for it. <laughs> Specifically the post-Origins experience that we had, where we got trapped in the airport mm-hmm. for over 24 hours together. I feel great about driving 10 hours <laughs> to Origins and Jason back. Jason looked like the genius now. When we booked our plane tickets, everybody was like, can you believe Jason is driving up from North Carolina? What an idiot. And he got home before all of us. <laughs> Yep. So it was, Suckers. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. 
It was. And I crazy. stopped at a distillery on the way home. So no, don't rub it in, man. So it started when. Well, actually, it started way before this. But I'll start with our plane gets canceled at one a.m. We're walking down the hall, and I say, "Hey, Chris, we could take the train back." And Chris goes, "Train? <laughs> we can't do the train." So we go and we sit down on the two chairs, and we're trying to figure out what to do. We're looking at renting cars, and they're all closed, and nothing was happening. Well, this woman just appears out of this ether. Yep, out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> and she's sitting across from me and she says, Hey, we could take the Amtrak. And Chris is like, Oh, yeah, hey, Amtrak. I was like, You're not there. What a great idea. Three minutes. Exactly. That was what I was talking Bill, about. Bill, why don't you ever have good ideas? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yes. Then we booked a trip back for 6 a.m. the next morning yeah. on the Amtrak. On the Amtrak. I have never ridden on the train before. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, it was a fun experience. It's kind of nice. It is. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's chill. We took the upgraded car, whatever it is. I guess it's the economy car or something. It was like $40. Right. And comfortable seats. It was a good trip back. It was fun, I have to say. As frustrating as it was, it was just such a crazy string of events. Because the girl that we met that you mentioned, she's actually a trainee at Duke University. She's a surgery resident. That's why you believed her. I guess so. Well, you know, I work at Duke. I train residents at Duke. And it was just so weird getting to meet her that way. But all that to say this is a really long segue into what I wanted to talk about. The day before we left Origins, we were walking around the hall one last time, and I was just looking for something to buy, and I was just getting that itch. And we walked by the Van Ryder Games booth, and they were primarily demoing a game called Last Girl, which was pretty hot. Oh yeah, the one Chris Battles kept trying to get a hold of. (laughs) Yeah, Battles was trying to haggle them, but that's not why I was there. They actually have a series of books called Graphic Novel Adventures. Oh, yeah. And these have been out for several years. These aren't necessarily hidden, but I do want to talk about them and my experience with them. I've been wanting to try them for a while, so there are about 20 or 25 of these now. But I was like, you know what? I could do this in the airport. It'll give me something to do on the plane. It'd be fun. So I picked up one. The one that I picked up was the very first one they released called Captive. As I mentioned, these are choose-your-own-adventure books. (laughs) But with a twist, there's a little Mm -hmm. bit of a game experience to them. So you actually have hit points, Mm -hmm. you have an inventory Mm -hmm. where you can carry up to three items, you have stats that you assign or choose at the start of the mission that are applicable during the book. Okay. So you like write it down? You, you, you do. Track it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I was actually tracking it on my notepad in my phone because mm-hmm. the reason it's important is you'll get to certain panels in the book and it will ask you if you have the butcher's knife. Go to page blah, blah, blah. Otherwise, go to page whatever. Right. right? If your dexterity is this high, then do exactly. this. Exactly. Right. Like mm-hmm. a big dog will be lunging at you mm-hmm. and be like, if your dex is seven or higher, go to this page. Otherwise, mm-hmm. go to this page and then you know you're screwed, right? Mm-hmm. But that's why it matters. So there's a little bit of a game to it, but it's mostly choose your own adventure. So the story to the book, and I will say it's... It's not really mature, but I would say it's not for young readers. Would you agree with that, Bill? Because you read it, too. Yeah, it's got some dark parts. It definitely does, yeah, which I love, right? I Mm. love that kind of stuff. Mm. But basically, the idea of the book is your daughter gets abducted. She's walking on the side of the street, and a van with the sliding door pulls up and just grabs her and pulls her in, and you get a ransom note. Tells you to go to this mansion on the outskirts of town, bring money, yada, yada, yada. Well, without spoiling anything... Basically, over the course of the book and the decisions you make, you begin to learn that her abduction and you being there was not a chance occurrence, and you were somehow connected to this place. And that's all I'll say about it. But there's a lot of really weird supernatural events that are going on, a lot of just cool stuff going on. Hmm. I would say this book, or this game, this actually has an entry on BGG. It's ranked 3,997, actually. Oh, really? It has an entry. Oh, cool. Okay. 
It reminded me a lot of the first Resident Evil game. Have you played Resident Evil, Bill? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah, have you played it? I have not. Okay, so if you've played the very first one, you will know that that game is a labyrinth. Mm-hmm. It's doors everywhere. Oh, yeah. And this game, or this book, is very much the same way. All the doors have numbers on them, and whatever door you go in, you flip to that panel, and that's what you see, and you kind of go from there. You can find hidden numbers in the environment for items and different things that will happen. It's cool. All I have to say, I enjoyed it. My only complaint, and I wonder if you'll feel similarly, Bill, I want to hear your thoughts on it too. It doesn't have any kind of save system, so it slightly has that time stories feel to it, where when you die, which you will on your first few runs, you have to start over. Right. Hmm. Now, I will say, because of how labyrinthian it is, it didn't bother me too much, because I was like, well, I'm just going to go this completely opposite way this time. Hmm. You have a lot of choices, and so it still keeps it somewhat interesting, but... It would be nice if there was a point in the game where it's like, okay, if you reach this point, you start here with X items and X health or whatever, so you don't have to go all the way back. But other than that... Is it the kind of thing, though, where you just pick a random direction and it's like, oh, sorry, you've been eaten by a Gru? Rarely. No. Yeah. (laughs) You've been eaten by a Gru. Yeah, no. (laughs) That can happen, but it's not a common occurrence. That's good. Yeah. yeah, that happened to me once, and it was pretty frustrating. I felt like I was getting pretty close. But yeah, when you get reset all the way back to the beginning, my goal was to see if I could finish it, because I knew I only had a short period of time. Yeah. And then trying to get back where I was was difficult. And Trying to remember. Trying to remember. It's like, where did, did I go here? Or whatever. But also, sometimes you'll come to these nodes, I guess, where you'll be like a hallway. There'll be mm-hmm. five rooms in it. And each of the rooms will have its own myriad of rooms. Set of rooms, yeah. Whatever. See, to me, I was trying to remember to go through it from left to right or through some sort of process on how to manage these big rooms. But sometimes you'd have a hallway off a hallway, right? Or whatever. And so it got to be really hard to remember. And I could see how that could be frustrating. Personally, I liked it because, like I said, it reminded me of Resident Mm -hmm. Evil where you're literally building a mental map of this building Mm -hmm. in your head. Mm-hmm. Or you reference Zork right now with the yeah. Gru. Like, yeah. it's like that. Like, you have yeah. to make a map because it's so labyrinthian. But I enjoyed that part of it, to be quite honest. I think it's the funnest part of the game. But it's not easy. Let's just put it that way. Nice. So, yeah, that's captive. I would say I'd give it a four if I were to score it. And mm-hmm. I actually want to try some more. I liked it. Cool. I'll have cool. to borrow it from you. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I would have a piece of graph paper next to you. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Yeah, I've been reading through Ready Player One, and one of the challenges in there is they have to play through Zork. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. it was good a good thing. throwback. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I finally finished it. I think I've referenced in the past on the show that I've been reading The Expanse. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember if I've explained the storyline of The Expanse yet or not, but I finally finished the series. It was nine books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it took me a year to read all of them. But I figured I should talk about it a little bit. I really enjoyed it. The Expanse is a sci-fi series. There's a show on Amazon, which I actually have not watched. I've watched part of it, and then I decided I wanted to read the books instead. I'll probably go back and watch the show at some point. But Mm -hmm. I think what drew me to it was the fact that it's sci-fi, but at least for the first six books, and I'll come back to the the last portion of it in a second, but at least for the first six books, it's one of the most realistic sci-fi series that I think I've read. They just do a very good job of making the world feel real. Mm-hmm. So the premise is that it's a couple hundred years in the future. The solar system has been mostly colonized. So Mars has multiple generations living on Mars. The asteroid belt has been colonized. 
and there are different classes of people. So there are people who have grown up and only known life on Mars. There are people who have grown up in the asteroid belt and the classes that live in the asteroid belt are the oppressed classes. There are the blue collar workers who just harvest all these ores and minerals and stuff to feed Earth and Mars, right? There's just so much political manipulation and things going on. It's really well written, and I really enjoyed that part. So yeah, definitely recommend it. It is nine books, which is a lot to read through. And I will say the last three books, it kind of goes in like three major segments. And the last three books get pretty out there from a sci-fi perspective. Okay. You lose a little bit of that political conniving and manipulation type right, stuff right. that's so good in the first six books. Which I think is maybe why they're like stopping the Amazon series a- after season six. Because they've been following book by book. It would be great if they wrapped it up because it's still good, the ending, but it gets pretty out there from a sci-fi perspective. But Yeah, I think you'll like the series a whole lot, and I'm looking forward to you watching it to see your opinion on whether it's worth reading the books because I might read the books if you think it's still different enough and a good enough experience because I I love the series. Yeah, it's an undertaking, but it was worth it. So I need to watch it. I know I would like it, and I've actually tried twice to start watching The Expanse. But the thing about shows like that is I'm usually punching game components <laughs> while I'm watching stuff like that because I'm always bagging games and doing stuff like that. And I just get a few minutes in and I'm like, I can't be counting shits and watching this show at the same time yeah. because it's introducing so much stuff. Oh, yeah. There's so many people and characters and stuff going on. And like the first episode, I'm like, man, I, I just have to just be watching this show or I'm not going to know what's going on. Yeah, it looks like there's some intense world building going on for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and like you said, the politics is great. They do a good job representing that in the show. And the acting is just, I think it's just awesome. So yeah. I'm excited for you. Nice. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk about some anthropomorphism. <laughs> Starting with a cocktail, yeah? Oh, yeah, sure. It's related. For tonight's featured cocktail, I, well, so I'm sure most people know this, but just for fun, what is anthropomorphism, Bill? i think it is using animals to act in a human way it's a good definition it doesn't have to just be animals but really anything the it's inanimate objects it's like attributing humanness to something that's not human right exactly right yeah the attribution of human traits emotions or intentions to non-human entities according to webster okay so, a lot of times that's animals, as you said, Bill. So, tonight's featured cocktail is a pretty classic cocktail, one I've never had, but I've been wanting to try for a while because I do enjoy gin quite a lot. And this one is heavy on the gin, let me tell you. It says the monkey gland. <laughs> okay. Oh, nice. I've heard of that drink yeah. before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one I've always wanted to try. So, it's two ounces of gin, one teaspoon of Benedictine, half an ounce of orange juice, and one teaspoon of grenadine, shaken mm-hmm. with ice and served. So, if you don't like gin, you won't like this. Oh, yeah. It's very gin-forward. It's very gin-forward, for sure. All right. So, before we get into the reviews, we'll see how this goes. We might end up cutting all this. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought we'd talk a little bit about anthropomorphism as a theme. I thought it would be fun to do. And I know people are probably wondering... Why in the heck? Y'all are probably wondering. Why did you even choose this? I've played all the games for this episode, and I'm still wondering. (laughs) I get it. I think it's interesting. I mean, it seems like a weird theme for an episode, right? But I was thinking about it as I was thinking about potential episodes and just trying to come up with creative ideas other than just doing publishers and designers. Mm -hmm. 
And anthropomorphism is very much entrenched in our culture, more so than I think we even realize. Oh, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. So Disney, for one, right? Sure. Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck. Lumiere. Mm-hmm. Lumiere, that's right. right. Lightning McQueen. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Potts. Mm-hmm. Or what's the teapot's so, name? Um, yeah, Beauty and the Beast. Beauty, Beauty and the Beast stuff, yeah. Tony the Tiger. Mm-hmm. Right, or the children's books, Watership Down. And Watership Down, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of that. And then board gaming, there's quite a bit too. So I just did a quick perusal of some of the top games on BGG and the ones I came across that I noticed just right away. Root, Everdell, Bunny Kingdom, Tiny Towns, Mice and Mystics. It's a very prominent theme within board games, more so than we realize. And the more I researched this, the more I fell down a bit of a rabbit hole, no pun intended, <laughs> with this... So, have you ever heard of furry fandom? <laughs> so, this is a thing. Are we about yeah. to talk about furries? Yeah, we are. <laughs> is that what that refers to? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I know what a furry is. What, what's a furry? They're like people who dress up like raccoons and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was funny. When our kids were on choir, they went to a competition in Atlanta, and we went to eat at a place that was directly across from a hotel that was having a furry convention. (laughs) (laughs) So we were out there with probably 60 high school students standing on a sidewalk, and there were people that were all walking by with the tails hanging out of their (laughs) backsides and all this stuff, and... (laughs) I walked over and got this flyer about the classes that they were having at this convention. <laughs> and I won't go into them, but they were... They were I wish some. you would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was like well, how to be a good pet for... Did you have your 360 camera at the I time? I did not. It was, it was, the 360 had not been invented What a yet. missed opportunity. I'm yeah. telling you. There are furry conventions. So the biggest one is the Midwest Fur Fest. <laughs> How many people do you think attended the Midwest Fur Fest in 2019? Let's see, was it more, more or less than Origins? What Probably more than I would think. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? 15,000. You're close. Really? 11,000. Wow. 11,000, yeah. Furry yeah. fandom, it's a thing. Yeah. It's a big thing. So all that to say, why do you think... Anthropomorphism is so popular in our culture because it definitely is. What do you think? People think talking animals are cute. (laughs) Okay. It's kind of like why we read sci-fi sometimes so that you can make social statements in a different setting so that people can see it. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when you put things to an animal, you are taking away a lot of social constructs and prejudices against peoples and classes. I think when we played with the two mics, they brought that up. It's like, if you don't want to offend a certain race, class, whatever you change it to animals then all of that kind of goes away or at least it reduces it some you went the much more educated route with your answer than oh, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry about that i'll drink no, that's, more, that, I'll drink no, more a great answer. <laughs> that's why i'm glad you were here tonight bill i think that's a great answer but you know i was thinking about this i think i agree with you but before the show started we were talking about mouse and i think we could probably talk about it now because i think yeah. it's appropriate so there's a graphic novel that i've read that i shared with jason and i want you to read bill called mouse mm-hmm. m-a-u-s And I know I joke around a lot about graphic novels being picture books and Mm -hmm. glorified comic books. In a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, they are. But I will say that Mouse is a special kind of graphic novel. It's actually the only graphic novel to win the Pulitzer Prize in 1992. Mm -hmm. It's written by Art Spiegelman, and it recounts his father, Vladek Spiegelman's experience as a Jew going through the concentration camps during World War II. And it's a powerful read, and it's a hard read. And I would say... 
it would be very difficult to do it any other way than if you did it through anthropomorphism because I just don't think you could draw that kind of stuff and it even be readable. You know what I mean? Because it's just so hard, right? But I think you make a good point, Bill, in that when that book, the Germans are all cats, Mm -hmm. the Americans are dogs, the Jews are mice, the Polish people are uh, pigs. pigs. Mm -hmm. And so... Is that racist? I don't know. You know what I mean? Because you're trying to make very clear divisions between different races. Like, this group of people were doing this kind of thing, generally speaking, right? Yeah. So um, It's interesting literary device, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right. Because I guess you can use that same device to actually emphasize the race or the... Right. Uh, or the right. Increase stereotyping. Right. <laughs> yeah. right, right. Yeah, solidify the lines. That's cool, and I can't wait to read it. Yeah, I think it, you'd like it. The other reason I think they use it is I think it makes things more whimsical because I think some of the things that we play tonight, mm-hmm. if they had people to them or royalty, it wouldn't have a bring to the table some fun, you know. It's more welcoming. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It just so happens, too, these games are mobster, gangster games. Mm-hmm. And if they were really gangsters smoking cigars, I don't think they would have as much appeal as... But even what you just said, like one of these games is a reprint of a game that's about royalty. (laughs) And and the theme and the theme of the game of anthropomorphic gangsters is much more palatable, I guess. I don't know. I mean that's kinda seems like a weird word to use for a game about the mafia, but it's true. Look at us getting all philosophical on hidden gems. Bill's in his wheelhouse right now. I know. This is the kind of stuff that Bill talks about drinking bourbon with his buddy. That's true. I'm missing pub theology tonight right now. Are you? Yes, just for you guys. You're a good man. (laughs) All right, well, unless anybody has anything else insightful to say about anthropomorphism. Jason? I think you've run me out of insightful things to say about it. (laughs) Cute, cuddly animals. Yes. All right, well, like I said, we got three games for you tonight, so let's get into it, yeah? Let's do it. The parties in Como Dragon's Beastie Bar are legendary. Neither the big beasties nor the small ones want to miss them. But you can get in only if you leave enough guests waiting in line behind you. And the animals are already pushing and shoving and baring their teeth. Will the crocodile bite its way ahead? Or will the skunk's odor cocktails be too overwhelming? And the chameleons will probably make complete monkeys of themselves. Even the mains of the party line regulars stand up when the next best seal opens up a new way in. That's Bill and Ted. Dude. <laughs> Sound like Zoolander. <laughs> what is this, a school for ants? <laughs> Blue steel. Alright. Awesome. That sucked. <laughs> I love the crew. Beastie bar. You have to edit that one heavily. That was, that was a struggle. Published in 2013. Oh my gosh. 13. 2013. That's right. I got fur, fur fever in my head right now. Published in 2014 by Zach Verlag and DeVere. You ready for this, Jason? At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 1,348. That's, wow. that's a shame. <laughs> Dude, I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> no, you don't. You can't spoil it. Designer, Stefan Klob. From a design standpoint, his only other notable design is Camel Up Off Season, which is a standalone game from Camel Up, and it has nothing to do with Camel Up. It shamelessly just uses the Camel Up name hmm. to boost sales, basically. Wow. Interesting. It doesn't have anything to do with Camel Up. He's also made numerous expansions for Beastie Bar, given its popularity. Oh. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So that means like different animals? Yes. Oh, different okay. types of cards, yeah. 
So I will mention that I did hear about this one on the Dice Tower because this game has been mentioned in Z Garcia's top 100 games of all time. More than once. He actually talks about this game quite a bit. He's a big fan of it. Hmm. All right. Having said all that, brief rule summary for Beastie Bar. In Beastie Bar, the players are attempting to have their animals jostle and push their way through the waiting line, trying to gain entry past the bouncer into the prestigious Heaven's Gate nightclub. Each player begins the game with the same deck of 12 cards in their chosen color. Each card depicts an animal, which is associated with a specific number, anywhere from 1 to 12, and a special ability associated with that specific animal. So just to reiterate, everybody's decks are identical. The only thing that differs is the color of the card, so everybody knows which card belongs to which person. The players begin by shuffling their personal deck of 12 cards and then drawing four cards randomly from the top of the deck. On a player's turn, they will choose one card from their hand to play into the back of the waiting line leading into the Heaven's Gate nightclub. If this card is the fifth card played to the line, the two cards in the front of the line gain entrance to the club, while the card in the back of the line gets kicked to the curb. The remaining two cards then move forward to start a new line leading into Heaven's Gate. So you may be asking yourself, where's the game here? Well, after each card is played, and before cards gain entry to the club or get the boot if it's the fifth card played to the line, the played card's special ability will take effect. I won't go through all of these for time, but I'll give just a couple of quick examples. So the lion, which is the number 12 card, will cause all monkey cards to get kicked from the line when played, and then he will move past all other cards and take his place at the front of the line. The parrot, on the other hand, which is the number 2 card, allows the player who plays the card to remove one player of their choice from the line. So they can just tell a card to get kicked from the line. Their choice. The seal, the number 6 card, interestingly makes the back of the line the front of the line. Oh, the seal. And the front of the line becomes the back of the line when he is played to the table. In addition to the played card's ability firing, there are also certain card abilities that will fire after every other player's turn until the card either gains entrance or gets booted for the line. So for example, the giraffe will move in front of the animal in front of them if it's a lower value at the end of every player's turn, not just the turn they were played. The game will end once all players' cards have been played, with the winner being the player who got the most animal cards into the Heaven's Gate nightclub. In the event of a tie, the players will sum the value of all their cards in the nightclub, and the winner will be the player with the lowest sum value. And that is generally how you play Beastie Bar. Good job. <clears throat> all right. So if you've been listening to Hid Gems for any amount of time, you've probably picked up on the fact that we talk a lot about control. Some people more than others, specifically Jason. <laughs> so control and feel for good reason. <laughs> yeah, for good reason. Feeling like your decisions matter, which I get that. I talk about this a lot too, right? Like, why are you playing a game if you feel like what you're doing doesn't really make any difference, right? So my question to y'all would be, did you feel like you had control in Beastie Bar? And if you didn't, did it matter to you? That's my question. Bill, I'll let you start on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're so kind, Jason. So, like all these things, I think it's kind of a yes and no. I feel like every time you played your card... Each one of the powers in the card could help you get to the front. Knowing all the card strategies, there was something you could think through to decide, I want to keep these cards till the end of the game because I think it'll benefit me more. But Hmm. there is no doubt this game is very chaotic. To me, I found that kind of fun. I did feel like there was a bit of a strategy to try to be at the front of the line. Yeah, 
I know where you're going with this, Chris. <laughs> I'm not going to say that there's no control in this game because obviously you have a hand of four cards. You can choose which card to play. You can choose which cards to hold till the end, right? But no play in this game is safe. Unless you're playing the fifth card. Unless you're playing the fifth card, which is important. And again, we'll come back to that. But I think part of your argument is going to be, well, if you have a good card, save those cards to the end. Well, that's great. But if everybody follows that same strategy and holds all their cards to the end, I think it can become somewhat predictable in that way in terms of, well, if everybody follows groupthink and starts holding the same cards to the end. You have control because you're choosing a card. Sure. Right. But after that point, you have no control over what happens in the line. Right. And yeah. it's whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Somebody's going to throw a seal down on the board and it's going to completely reverse the line. And everything you did to put one of those strategic cards down is going to be for naught. Right. Because there are cards that just do mass mayhem. And there <laughs> are cards that, right? it, yeah. that it require finesse or strategy. It seems like most people are going to hold the cards that do mass mayhem towards the end so they can just wreck everybody as they're trying to get their last couple cards in. And so that means that playing those strategic cards early becomes all the more difficult because everyone's just holding on to those bomb everything cards. And so anytime you get close to getting something in, I'm just going to throw a bomb everything card and destroy it all. Interesting. I'll begin by saying this is why I'm glad that we don't talk to each other very much about our feelings about the game because I think maybe y'all think I feel differently about this game than I do. I will say that I think there is little to no strategy in this game. Mm -hmm. I would say this game is like 98% tactical. Mm -hmm. I think on your turn, what you're tasked with is looking Mm -hmm. at your four cards and just figuring out what your best play is in the moment. What are your best odds? Right. And that's or, it. Or how much damage can you do? You nailed it. It's what's my highest probability play? That's what I wrote down here. If I'm not playing the fifth card, what's my highest probability play of having some successful thing happen to me in the future? Right. And I think with a hand of four cards, at least for me, it didn't seem like it was too difficult to figure that out. I never felt like I was struggling to decide what to play. Mm-hmm. I usually decided I think this is pretty clearly my best move, and I'm going to do it. Just understanding that nothing is guaranteed unless you're the person playing the fifth card. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll circle back to the fifth card. How did y'all feel about this? Because I know this was something that we discussed quite a bit when we were playing this game. Having that power in the game, I guess. Yeah, I made a pretty strong case for whoever gets to play the fifth card has a massive advantage, and I think that's true. I think you two were making the argument of, well, you can control that somehow, right? But we're saying you have no control in this game. So if you're saying we have no control in this game, you can't say you have control over who plays the fifth card, right? You can attempt, you can play a card and be like, well, this is my best chance of maybe it circling around and ending up being me, mm-hmm. right? But I could play a card that takes one card out of the line so that it perfectly lines up so that when it gets back to me, there'll be five. And then Bill plays an alligator and eats the entire line, and now it's back to zero, right? And I think that's a good play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Bill Bill is the tactical mastermind (laughs) of Beastie Bar, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. We were playing the game. I played this one several times, but I remember one game we were playing. It just so happened I kept landing to be the fifth person. And I think Jason was getting kind of frustrated about that. And I see that frustration, but I think when you see that happening, you have to play a card that just breaks that cycle. Assuming you have one. There are a lot of cards that do that. I was doing that on certain occasions, and it would just continue to not be me, right? (laughs) 
I mean, to me, I find that dynamic just kind of fun. I mean, I find it chaotic. Yes, I'm playing the probability play. I'm not necessarily having to think super hard about it. Mm -hmm. I think this is great for variance and house rules. Like, what happens if we take three cards and pass it to the person to your left? So now you're doing the negative of the card that's on there, right? Because they're playing somebody else's card. Well, now we're adding Crononaut rules. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Or how long is it going to take for Crononauts to get mentioned? Exactly. Or, or, I mean, I just think, to me, the times that I played it, I thought it was just fun and funny. And yes, I didn't have any great expectation I was going to win. But that's why you come to play games is to have fun. Right, right. And I think this is one of those ones that is so fast that it would be great to come out and say, hey, everybody's not here yet. Let's play something that I can teach the rules to you in five minutes and, you know, have a little fun before everybody shows up. I think you make a good point. This game very much has that stand back and watch what happens kind of phenomenon to Mm -hmm. it, right? And you know it's going to be crazy. But it just kind of has that, okay, I'm going to play this card and I just want to see what happens. It has that feel, which I think in the right group and in the right mood and the right circle could be very successful and fun for certain groups, for sure. Yeah, I will give it that. I think it fits a certain mood and a certain group mm-hmm. perfectly, right? Maybe more so than Crononauts. I think I was going to... Oh, gonna... for sure. Crononauts is a dumpster fire. <laughs> right, because because that that is more involved surprisingly, is more involved than this, right? Yeah. This is play a card to the line, see what happens. Right. right. Chrononauts has multiple ways to win and all this stuff you're trying to figure out, and it still doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> and so I guess in the right circumstances, this game could be a hit, right? One other thing that I'll point out that I found kind of odd with this game is that when the game ends, which is once everybody's played out all their cards, if there are still cards in the line, nothing happens to those cards. And so it felt like in most of the games we were playing, your last two card plays are pretty much just moot, right? Because so much is happening in the line that's shrinking the line down that playing that fifth card is not every fifth card that goes down on the table, right? It's because animals are getting eaten and stuff all throughout. And so it felt like a lot of the times when we were ending the game, it's like, well, I have two cards left in my hand, but it just doesn't matter because we're never even going to be able to play enough to get it to hit five again, which is an anticlimactic way for the game to end. It feels like if you manage to keep your animal in the line by the end of the game, you should get half a point or something just for managing to stay alive, right? Because <laughs> right. um, otherwise it just makes those last couple turns feel like they're pointless. Why are we still playing cards if none of it's going to matter anyway? <laughs> you weren't dancing disco in the bar, man. You don't get, <laughs> you don't right. get partial You're standing in the alley. There's no partial points. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm glad you mentioned that. I did feel like this game had a little bit of a disappointing arc as well because I found, and maybe this was groupthink, but it just seemed to make sense a lot of times that people were holding that skunk and that parrot till the end. Mm-hmm. And so people were scoring most of their points at the beginning and then it was just a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. And like the last five plays where everybody was just knocking out everybody's stuff. And mm-hmm. that happened more often than not, I would say. Right. I tried to get rid of my skunk early because I just didn't want to stare at that card with a giant skunk butthole on it. With a sphincter? <laughs> giant butthole on it. Whole, little, little I will say the, the art is a little off-putting, in my opinion, for this game. Oh, that's funny. I enjoyed the art. <laughs> Except for the skunk. That's pretty. What else you got, Bill? I think that's it. I'm kind of ready for final thoughts. All right. Well, I'm ready if you are, Jason. You I think ready? we've already spent more than enough time talking about this. Okay. All, right. All right. Well, we're going to start with Bill. 
Because okay. I'm really curious to hear, hear what okay, Bill's going to say. I know, I know you guys are going to rain hate on this, but I'm going to say, I'm not sure how much you can crack on a game like this for it unabashedly being itself. And if you don't <laughs> like it, it's more of a statement to me that you just don't like games like this. Right? You just it's, don't like fun, is basically what Right, exactly. Saying. I mean, this is... <laughs> I mean, uh, there are times where you want that deeply strategic game or whatever, and there are times that you're just going to have something that's a little bit more random. The cards, I thought, had a great mix of ability. I like the fact that if there were ties, the lower numbers that got in were the ones that yeah. kind of broke that tie. Because those cards are harder to get in. Much more yeah. harder to get in. I could see some variants that could make this game much more interesting. But anyway, I'm going to give it a four because I had fun playing it and I could absolutely see doing it with my family. And again, it's not Medina or something like that because <laughs> it just doesn't need to be in that category. Sure. Looks like you're going to be buying it from Christmas. Yeah, really. Yes. I brought my money. <laughs> Sweet. So I see your point, Bill, about the fun factor and it being fun in the right circumstances. I think that for me personally, and it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who's listened to this show more than a couple episodes, <laughs> this is not my idea of fun when it comes to a game. If I want randomness and chaos in a game, I'm going to play a game like Camel Up that we talked about in the last episode, right. which, is, which is just as chaotic, but in a hilarious and still fun, and yet somehow there's still some meat on the bones yeah. something to think about and something to plan for and hope for and rally around when it happens. This is more just chaos. It's just, <laughs> I play my card. Okay, I'm going to hope it's going to get through. Bill plays an alligator and everything gets eaten in the line. And it's just, okay, all right, great. <laughs> I'll try again next time, all right. I can see where it would fit in the right circumstances. For me personally, this is a two. It's just not for me. I don't think that that means that it's a two for everybody. And so if this is something that sounds fun to you, give it a shot, right? It's a quick filler, chaotic, laugh out loud type game, right? For me personally, though, I have to stay true to my yeah. style. And uh, it's a two for me. Yeah, we talked about this in our backstage episode. So yeah. Our grading philosophy, and I agree with you. you got to grade it based on your feeling, right? Mm -hmm. I can say for me, right off the bat, I would say this game really deserves a two. It really does. <laughs> But I'm not going to give it a two. I'm going to give it a three. Just out of the pure entertainment factor of watching the chaos unfold on the table at times, especially when it wasn't happening to me in the negative, was well, quite enjoyable. Because <laughs> some really crazy stuff can happen in this game. And so it does have that fun sit back and watch feel to it that I was talking about earlier, which does bump this up from a two to a three. But... This would never be a game I would keep. It's not a four for me. Like Jason, I agree. This just isn't my idea of fun in a board game, but I can see why people would enjoy it. However, I will say, the one other thing that kind of worries me a little bit about this game is I think this type of game, I could see this being very popular amongst people that don't play games as regularly as we mm -hmm. do and like the bigger, meatier games, which is totally fine. Mm -hmm. But this game does have a lot of confusing iconography on it, I think. Yeah, you're saying it's quick teach. I don't know that it is quick teach because you have to explain all 12 cards right. and what they do and then you have to remember what all 12 cards do. And I, I think yeah. in a way that's kind of a strength of the game because all the 12 cards are different and they're interesting, but it requires that everybody at the table remember what all 12 mm -hmm. cards do. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the bottom, it does summarize what they do through iconography, but some of them, mm -hmm. it's not totally clear. It's very confusing. And so right. I wonder... If you got this out with family at Christmas or something, if this wouldn't just totally bomb. Mm -hmm. I think that potential is there. Okay, so just be aware of that. That's if you're thinking, oh, this would be great for my girlfriend's family or something. It may mm -hmm. not be. Okay, yeah. but it is lighthearted 
And so for that, I could see how it could be successful in some circles. All that to say, I give it a three. It's just okay. Awesome. All right. Where can we find it, Chris? All right. So interestingly, this game is a little hard to find right now. I didn't see any news of a reprint, but I have to imagine one is coming because they just recently did an expansion to this game with more cards. Like I said, they're constantly keeping new material coming for this game. So if you're having a hard time finding it, it will probably come back into circulation soon. All that to say, there are no copies on Noble Knight right now, but there are 15 copies on BGG. You can buy it in the marketplace for as low as $15. So you can get it there, but it's a little bit harder to find amongst normal distributors right now. You'll be able to find it on Bill's shelf that Cameron built. <laughs> That's well. right. It's all yours, buddy. <laughs> All right, well, those are our final thoughts on Beastie Bucks. All right. Players act as mafia counterfeiters, printing fake bills and exchanging them for the real thing. The Godfather can help them avoid the police, but his protection comes at a cost. The game ends when the police complete their investigations into the counterfeiting industry. The winner will be the player with the most real non-counterfeit money. Good job, Bill. Scarface is my second job. <laughs> I love how all of your voices just slowly transition into the Bill growl. <laughs> the Bill growl. <laughs> I'm waiting for my Scottish. <laughs> it should have been a Scottish counterfeiter. <laughs> Players act as a car. <laughs> Which will then slowly transition into the, the Bill, Bill growl. growl. <laughs> <laughs> concentrating so hard on reading the words (laughs) that's so true all right counterfeiters published in 2018 by quinted games designed by olivier bourgeois and currently ranked on bgg 3458 counterfeiters is a game about making the most money literally making the most money players will be printing their own counterfeit bills and then attempting to launder those bills into real cold hard cash in order to come out on top with the most genuine bills at the end of the game. This is a worker placement game where each player is going to be placing four pawns each round across six different action areas. Along the center of the board is also a track along which a police investigator pawn will be moving, causing various types of mayhem throughout the game. Each player begins with a single printing press and one of three of the required ingredients for printing, ink, paper, and holograms. So I'm just going to go through the action spaces because there's only six of them. I'll mm-hmm. go through them briefly and explain what they do because that's really all there is to this game. It's pretty straightforward. So the first space, the black market, allows players to purchase a card from a line of available cards with ascending costs as you go further down the line. These cards are primarily additional printing presses and additional printing ingredients which help improve the quality of your counterfeit bills. But there are several other special effect cards in the deck that I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about right now. The next action space is the print banknotes space. On this space, players print counterfeit bills. You'll print two counterfeit bills per printing press that you have at a quality level that corresponds to the number of ingredients you have. And you don't lose these ingredients. So once you have paper, you have paper for the whole game. But if you have one of the required ingredients, you print one star bills, which are kind of all faded and wrinkly. If you have two ingredients, you get two star bills, and three ingredients give you three star bills, which are as close to the real thing as you can get. The next action space is the supermarket. This is a great one. I love it. (laughs) At the supermarket, you can trade in up to any three counterfeit bills. So these can be any quality level. 
up to three bills and get $50 real bills in exchange. So you're laundering your money at the supermarket. Scamming the publics. The quality doesn't matter here until it does. <laughs> so the catch here is that the supermarket wises up over time with the aid of the police. Each action space on the board has multiple spots where a worker can be placed. Some of these spots have a police icon on them. Anytime a worker is placed on one of those spaces, the police marker will move an additional space down its track. Which and is the game timer. Which is a game timer, but yeah. it also has iconography on it that controls certain actions throughout the game. Yep. And at certain points on the track, there are symbols that affect the supermarket as the police investigate the shadiness that's going down here. <laughs> so early on in the game, at a certain point, the supermarket will stop accepting one-star quality bills. And then further on down the line, they will stop accepting two-star bills. And then finally, towards the end of the game, they will stop accepting three-star bills, which means you can no longer use that space. The next action space I'll talk about is the receiver. So the receiver is very similar to the supermarket. However, it never closes. It's not affected by the police. But the trade-in value here is less. So the trade-in value that you get for each of your counterfeit bills corresponds to the quality. So the higher the quality, the higher amount of money that you get. You also get more throughput here, so you can get eight bills through on each action instead of just three. The next action space is tax fraud. So tax fraud, for some reason in this game, gives you legitimate money. <laughs> um, but it's the only way to get legitimate money straight up. Taking the tax fraud action just gives a player $30 in real bills. And then the last space is an important one, is the fly to the Caribbean space. <laughs> so this is how you offload your money to your offshore accounts. One of the other effects of the police track is the godfather space. And each time the police marker crosses a godfather space, every player has to immediately pay tribute to the Don by losing half of their cash, all of their real cash, counterfeit bills, Godfather doesn't care about those. But all of your real cash, you lose half of it every time the Godfather space is crossed. And Unless it's in your offshore account. Unless it's in your offshore account, that's right. So taking the fly to the Caribbean action allows a player to take as much or as little of their real bills that they have and stash them away in a secret envelope for their offshore account. And that money can no longer be spent for the rest of the game, but it's also immune to the effect of the Godfather. And that is pretty much the whole game. Mm -hmm. The game continues round by round, and it ends as soon as the police investigator reaches the final space on his track, at which point the player with the most real money, counterfeit bills are worthless, most real money wins the game. So that is entirely how you play this game, with mm -hmm. the exception of the special cards. I'll start off with a question about this track in the center of the board. I think this is a little bit unique. It's probably yeah. not the only time it's been done, but it's unique for a game of this length and for a worker placement game. Yeah. Mainly because the pacing of when that police investigator moves is controlled by worker placement choices. Yes. Right? You can choose to place on a space that has a police icon on it, even if there's one that doesn't have an icon on it right next to it. So curious to get you guys' thoughts on that. How did it affect the gameplay, and what did you guys think about it? Yeah, I gotta say, I loved this part of the game. This was probably my favorite part of the game. I think every worker placement game obviously has to have a catch or some sort of uniqueness that sets it apart, sets it separate from the rest of the field. And I think that this is that part. Not only in that it controls the length of the game, but as you mentioned, Jason, different spots on that time track cause things to happen. And it's not trivial. In fact, it is very strategic, mm -hmm. right? 
So, for example, you mentioned the supermarket space and the supermarket getting better at picking out counterfeit bills. If I'm making high-quality bills and everybody else is making lower-quality bills, it behooves me to move that pawn forward so that people can't benefit from the supermarket. Only I can. Because the supermarket gives you the best exchange in the game. Right. right? It's a powerful spot. But you can control who accesses that through the placement of other workers and the movement of that pawn. And then, obviously, the Godfather space, so strong, right? If you get hit by the Godfather and you don't have your money in offshore accounts, losing half of your money can really sting, right? Oh, yeah. And so mm-hmm. there's a little bit of a game of chicken that goes on here because you can see, well, I can cash out my counterfeit bills now for money, but it's two spaces away. And if Jason goes on a police spot and Bill goes on a police spot, I'm going to lose my money. If they choose to do that, right? So you're constantly trying to decide what's safe, what's not safe. When should I make my move? When should I not make my move? Should I make the pawn move forward? I don't know. I just thought it was really cool mechanism for sure. Yeah, I will throw in there real quick just in case folks are wondering. There is one space on the board that happens to be on the tax fraud action Mm -hmm. that has a special icon on it that allows you to claim the first player marker for the next round, which becomes a very important space given what you just talked about. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I, I agree. I love the track. It certainly made for interesting decisions that added to all the things you were deciding on the rest of the board and made that first player marker really important, especially yep. in the end game, because the events start getting tighter and tighter as you get towards the end of the game where you have something interesting every time. I will say, anytime you go to the supermarket, it is automatically a police action, and there's only mm-hmm. two spaces on it. So if you're going to get the high money, you're moving it towards the end of the game. So yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting, too. I thought it was a great mechanism as well. Yeah. Yeah. I liked the track. I feel like you honed in on that strategy, Chris, pretty early, which you tend to do in these types of games. I tend to miss stuff like that, and then I get halfway through the game, and I'm like, oh, crap. Now I'm going to lose half of everything. And just, <laughs> Chris figured this out, and I didn't. Somehow, I still managed to win that game. Uh, (laughs) So I feel good about that. It was fun to play with, though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, it's such a great mechanism, especially with the Godfather thing, because you're planning out, you have to balance, well, I want to do these actions, and I want to make sure I get all this money, but I also, uh, do I, like, waste? It's not really a waste, but do I spend this action that I would much rather spend on something else that's so much juicier to grab that first player marker to make sure that I'm the one who can control when it crosses over. So it puts that tension in the game, which is what we always talk about, that is so important. I think it does make this game from just being a standard worker placement game into something a little more special. Yeah, Jason and I, I know we've played worker placement games so many over the years now, you and I. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of our favorite genres. And looking back over worker placement games just as a whole, I would be interested if you agree with me on this. I feel like better worker placement games tend to emphasize the first player acquisition part much more highly. If I don't feel a lot of tension to jump into first, that's kind of a negative for me in worker placement. If you're in the back of the line, you should feel pressure to want to change that for yourself. And in this game, it's so important. And I feel like that those strongly correlate. The desire to be in first makes for a better worker placement game, and this one very much incentivizes it. Yeah, that's interesting, because if that's not there, then that implies one of two things. It either implies that most of the actions are kind of equivalent in terms of their benefit, or it means that players can diversify their strategies to such a degree that it doesn't matter anymore. Right. And both of those things take away from the tension. I don't really want to take this weaker first player action, but I know I need to so that I can do this thing next round. Mm -hmm. That is so important in worker placement games, I think. Mm -hmm. 
So I want to back up and play the role of Cameron here just for a second. I agree with everything you said, by the way. One <laughs> of the things I thought this game did so, so well was just capture the theme oh, yeah. of being a counterfeiter. Totally to, agree. Just to look at the dollars on the side there, you see the one-star, two-star, and three-star counterfeit bills, and they get darker as you look at them. They look like higher-quality bills. And the whole idea of the supermarket and the, the police getting better at doing it. Teaching and the supermarkets teaching how to recognize super, fake right. bills. Yeah. And, yeah, and your three ingredients are getting quality paper, getting quality ink and getting the hologram thing yep. it just and then once you have all those you have three stars i, I loved that part of offshore this game. accounts offshore accounts as far as nailing a theme i think this is maybe one of the best nailed themes i think we've played in a long one i totally agree with you and i would say that being somebody that teaches games a lot mm-hmm. this game is so easy to teach because it's so thematic mm-hmm. and that's how you know when a game is thematic because all the mechanisms just make sense right right it was just easy to teach this game because everything is intuitive. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. Right. right. Love that. Yeah. I do like the balance that this game strikes between the engine building and the worker placement. It becomes so much stronger because of the shortness of the game. Oh, yeah. Um, it's such a short and simple game that every decision feels like it matters. Right. There are plenty of games that do engine building and worker placement and merge them together and, and they do it well. Right. But I liked how they balanced that here. I think one game I spent most of the first half of the game just buying all the cards and it ended up working out for me, but I can see how that strategy could also really hurt you if somebody is rushing the end game and just printing out money and pocketing it the whole game. So it definitely creates additional tension there of how much do I focus on buying cards and printing presses and extra ingredients and all this stuff or how much do I just like get what I can get now and end the game quickly. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the speed of the game, too. I think that's another great strength of this game that needs to be mentioned. This game is not a filler, but it's close. And for a worker placement game, I think this is a really unique one and fits in a unique niche because usually worker placement games are like an hour and a half at least, sometimes much longer. 35 minutes on the box. Yeah. I know Bill and I and Mike Drummond and Mike Hughes, Mm -hmm. shout out to One Bookcase, Mm Mm-hmm. We played this game twice, back-to-back, and neither game lasted more than 45 minutes. Right. And we were playing snappy, and it was fun. Mm -hmm. Everybody's taking their turns quick, but still with meaningful decisions. Mm -hmm. It's just so unique in that regard. Worker placement games don't normally do that. Right. I can't think of another one, honestly, and it does that really well. It It was fun to play. Yeah. So I have a question. The worker placement spots don't expand with the number of players because we played with three players and we played with four players. And so in the end game, when you have only two spots, for instance, at the receiver, then if you're not the first player or the next player right after them, you could have 16 counterfeit bills. But if you're not the person at the end game who can get their monies converted or sent to the receiver, then you're just kind of out of the game. So how do you feel about the last two turns of the game and how it plays out? And do you think it plays like it should? I do. I think this just underscores the value of the first player pawn and really trying to make sure that you get that. And if you don't, that just tells me that you can't necessarily just wait for some bombastic turn at the end of the game, right? Like, I saw people sit on a pile of counterfeit bills, myself included one game, and couldn't get them converted because I was banking on something happening that I just couldn't make happen because of circumstances, Mm -hmm. some of which were my own fault. Mm -hmm. And I think that underscores the importance of converting money when you can earlier in the game, even in spite of the Godfather, right? I didn't necessarily see that as a negative. I think... That's just a risky run, and I could think back in that particular game all the times that I passed on making money earlier in the game when I could have turned a profit. 
and pushed my luck and tried to hit a really big score at the end and it just right. didn't work for me, right? Yeah. So I don't necessarily see that as a negative in this case. All right, well, we've been talking for a little bit. Jason, why don't we get into final thoughts? What do you think about counterfeiters? Yeah, I think this is a great combination engine building worker placement on a small yet somehow still pretty meaningful scale. Is it the best worker placement game I've ever played out there? No, but I think it's solidly worth a try for what it is. I think the theme is fun. The anthropomorphic animals come through (laughs) for it. So I'm going to give this game a solid four. I enjoyed this one. I would definitely play it some more. Okay. So I don't talk a whole lot about theme in games, but I'm really glad you mentioned theme, Bill, because I could not agree with you more in this case. We're channeling our inner Cameron here for sure. (laughs) This game just kills it on the theme. The game is just fun to play, hilariously so at times, just because of how well it integrates the theme into the gameplay. Then to make it even better, I think the game is pretty fantastic, to be quite honest. Excellent choices. I feel like this game has that phenomenon when you're in a game and you're like, okay, this is my pivotal turn. If I get this turn wrong, I'm in trouble or I'm probably going to lose, right? I feel like this game has that happen a few times. (laughs) And I think it's because your runway is so short in this game that if you err, Mm -hmm. you could be out of it, right? There are two or three times that'll happen to you every game. Right. Again, great. I love that you can control the tempo of the game. The speed of the game, how it ends, how the policeman pawn moves, fantastic. The only thing that worries me slightly about this game is there's no variable setup, really. The only thing that differs from game to game is your position and turn order and how the black market cards come out, which is very minimal variability. (laughs) So could it start to feel samey over time? Possibly. However, I think the gameplay experience is so fun and it's so short and that's another thing too I don't know of any other worker placement game that you can play in this kind of a window so quickly that it overcomes those concerns for me this game really wowed me I was super surprised at how good this game was and I really enjoyed it I'm giving this one a 5 I think it's great really enjoyed Mafiozu uh, really enjoyed <laughs> Counterfeiters and I highly recommend it 5 awesome yeah, I thought this game was fun. Easy to learn, fun to play. I loved to see it on the table. I mean, the whole feeling of being a counterfeiter just oozed out of its pores. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved it. My only concern, I guess, is that end game thing that I ask about. Because mm-hmm. I feel like there may be some strategy that comes at the end that people realize I've got to have that first player token for my last turn. And so people think, well, then for me to get on my last turn, I need to have it. On my second to last turn. And so I take it, it my first on my second right, last turn. Like, right. so or maybe start, I should take it know, on my first action on my third to last, last turn. turn. Exactly. <laughs> so there'll be some, some escalating war for all of that. So will that end up being the strategy at the end? Because it is so important to get rid of your counterfeit bills at the very end. But with all that said, I thought it was great. I would love to play it again and more. And I gave it a five as well. Awesome. Cool. All right. Chris, where can we find counterfeiters? Yeah, so good news on this one. There are copies available on Noble Knight. So you can get it there with our sponsors at Noble Knight. If you do, use our discount code 22GEMS. If you put that in the discount code field, you'll get 10% off your order. And if I'm not mistaken, I think both mics that we played with both bought this game. So oh, as we were they, sitting here, yeah. Yeah, That's as we were sitting here, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah they enjoyed it that much. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there are still copies on Noble Knight even after that, but I know that they enjoyed it. You can also find it on BGG. There are 10 copies now, as low as $9. Wow. Is that not crazy? Wow. Yeah. Now, I will say, this is a small box game. Which makes it even more impressive, I think. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of bang for your buck, mm -hmm. for sure. Nine bucks. I think that's a steal for this game. So, pretty easy to get right now. Cool. All right. Those are our thoughts on counterfeiters. Jackal Piero fell. He will be imprisoned at Cat Rat Prison for 20 years. Will you seize the opportunity? Welcome to the family. Here, you will find many members with various power. Use your influence to get their favors. Send your henchmen to districts to gain more influence. Once you control those districts, you will become richer and more powerful. But don't forget the Godfather. He could be useful to you. Welcome to the family. Yeah, I would have done that. We'll make you an I, offer I, you can't refuse. Yes, sir. Yeah, I can't, I can't do the voice. <laughs> so, sorry, that's what you, you get what you get. It's awesome. I love it, man. We're going to leave that rabbit head in your pillow tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ma Mafioso. You picked an awful lot of uh, of mafia-themed games for anthropomorphism. I did. Ma Mafioso. Mafioso. Yeah, get it right. Mafioso? No. Mafioso. Mafioso. <laughs> yeah, that's that with a zoo. Mafioso. Right. Mafioso. Yeah, there you go. Okay. You that's what I said. We debated this for like 15 minutes before the episode started, just so everybody's aware. All right, mafioso. <laughs> Published in 2017 by Super Meeple and Surfin' Meeple. However, I will note that this game is actually a reprint of a much older classic game, Louis XIV, which was published in 2005. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 5,115. Louis the Fourteenth's rating is eight hundred and twenty-eight. Wow, hmm. isn't that interesting? It is very interesting. Okay, designer of this game is Rudiger Dorn. Yeah, oh baby, mm -hmm. talk about a treasure trove of hidden gems goodness right here. We, yeah. I'm shocked we haven't done a Rudiger Dorn episode yet, but it's coming. He has eighty-nine published designs: Traders of Genoa, Goa, Awesome, Arcadia, Las Vegas, Il Vecchio. Oh, yeah. That's got to be on the show. One of Jason's favorite, spoiler, Istanbul, Karuba, etc., etc., etc. All right. Brief rule summary for Mafia Zoo. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Mafio Zoo is a resource management auction game of sorts where the players are attempting to gain favor tokens in order to gain a presence in certain locations of influence on the board in order to score points. The players gain favor tokens and other rewards, such as money, cards, and neighborhood tokens, by influencing characters with gems on something known as the blotter. The blotter shows the pictures of 12 different characters of interest, and some of these characters are connected to other characters by a line. So think like that conspiracy theory meme with the guy with the cigarette standing in front of the pictures that are all connected with the thumbtacks <laughs> and the yarn, you know what I'm talking about, where everything's connected. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of laid out like a checkerboard, though. It's a little like more orderly The than connections and on the diagonals. On the diagonals, but that's the idea. Okay. At the start of each round, each player will be dealt five bribery cards, and they will play four of these five cards each round. Each bribery card will show either a picture of one of the characters that can be influenced on the blotter, or it will show a picture of the Godfather. 
If a player plays a card with a specific character on it, the player can place up to three of their gems on that character in an attempt to influence them for their reward. Interestingly, however, the player can also choose to take some of those placed gems and move them to nearby characters that are connected by a string and influence them as well. So let's say I put three gems on character 10. I could then optionally choose to pick up two or one of those three gems and transfer them to character 9. Then I could additionally pick up one of those gems and put it on character 7 if he was attached to character 9, for example. Instead of influencing, the player also has the option of discarding the card and retrieving three gems from their reserve. So these are gems that were used to win earlier auctions, so they've been spent. They can get those back and place them into their usable slush fund to influence other characters. If a player plays a Godfather card instead, they can only place up to two gems instead of three on their turn, but they can place these gems on any character in the blotter. The player can also discard this card to get two gems back into their slush fund from the reserve. Once every player has played four cards, each character is then evaluated. For some characters, you need to have the most gems on them to get the reward, so you must have the majority. While on other characters, you can still get the reward by paying a certain amount of money, even if you don't have the most gems on them. You just have to have some presence on them. And finally, certain characters will give you a reward for just allocating gems to them. So if you at least put two gems on them, you'll get the reward. And it's important to note that these are not spent gems. You just have to take the time and actions to put the gems on them during your allocation phase. It should be noted that one space will have the Godfather token on it and this token moves around from round to round. And whoever wins this space will win a Wild Godfather token in addition to the character's normal reward. So what are we doing with all these tokens? Well, at the end of each round, players will spend these tokens in order to place their goons onto certain locations that require differing combinations of two favor tokens. These locations give you in-game points, but they also give you certain static benefits for the rest of the game. So for example, if you place a goon on the racetrack, you will get two extra dollars at the start of each round for the rest of the game. At the end of four rounds, the players will add up the value of all their occupied locations, the value of their neighborhood tokens, plus some extra small points for things like unspent favor tokens and leftover money. Most points is the winner. That's generally how you play Mafia Zoo. <laughs> did, you did you mention the circular tokens? The no, so... Neighborhood tokens, uh -huh. I mentioned a couple times in the rules, but I didn't go into them in depth. Okay. Because I figured we would probably talk about them. Bill, in the Bill was asleep. Yeah, I thought you sorry. I'm young. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not offended. <laughs> Bill takes Glad naps I didn't during snore. the rules <laughs> Totally. It is already past my bedtime. That's all right. It's not Meg time. But yeah, I, I imagine we'll probably talk about them. Okay. Okay. So, as I mentioned in the rules overview, on the main game board, there are two halves to the board. There's an upper part of the board, which is the locations of influence, where you place your goons to score points and get benefits. But there's also the bottom part of the board, the blotter. Mm -hmm. This is where all the connections are and where you're influencing different characters. Mm -hmm. So how did you feel about this part of the game where you're basically bidding? I think you could consider this an auction where you're bidding a certain number of gems mm -hmm. on characters to earn their favor. And how this part of the game worked with the management of your gems versus your money. That resource management surrounding the auction mechanism. I mean, I think that is the game, right? I enjoyed that part. I think it's neat how the locations have tokens on them that are double-sided, right? So it can change the, mm -hmm. the condition. It doesn't change the benefit from the space, but it changes the condition that wins the space from 
whether you have to be first or just pay money or whatever. Every game will be a little um, different. So it, right. it tweaks the game a little bit. Like if a lot of spaces come out that are that first space, then it's like a knife fight mm-hmm. area control type bidding style game. Versus if there's a lot of spaces with money, you can get things more easily theoretically, but then you also have to have enough money to be able to pay for them when you're not coming in first. And all of that sort of balanced with how do I make sure that I'm getting enough gems back each round to not yeah. be strapped for gems? Because anytime you win a space with a majority, you lose your gems. And so sometimes coming in second is better than coming in first if you have the money to pay for it. So Sure. Yeah. It created a good puzzle, I think. Yeah, I thought so as well. I thought the effort to get the tokens to match with the upper board created a strategy where you put their influence gems as you ran through that connection thing. As that board develops, the gems will start piling up on the board as people start bidding things for it. And you have to hold the cards in your hand so that if you want something very specifically that you have access to it so that you can snipe it at the end. Come over the top. Right. So it's an interesting kind of game because this is one where going last is way more important than going first. So that is a huge part of this game. Yeah, I think this is one of those games, and it's structured in such a way to where everybody's in last position at least once, at Mm -hmm. least in a four-player game, which I think is the optimal way to play this. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to plan on optimizing the round where you're in last position because that's really where you can make good things happen for yourself in that position of power. I totally agree. Mm -hmm. As far as how the blotter works, I enjoyed this part of the game too. I found it fascinating how winning auctions obviously is what you want to do in an auction game, right? Mm -hmm. But the more gems that you spend to win said auctions, specifically ones that you really want to try to ensure to win, all those gems get spent. Mm -hmm. They go out of your slush fund into your reserve, thereby reducing your ability to win future auctions. So you actually have to use wasted turns to get those gems back, Mm -hmm. which enables your competitors to get the upper hand, right? That's interesting. However, if you take the other route where you're like, well, I'll try to just win a lot of these where I can pay cash, right? That's Mm -hmm. another strategy. Mm-hmm. But your money can also run out, right? So yeah. I did. And find, money's worth points. And so every worth three dollars you spend is a point that you're losing. Exactly. Right. So I did find it interesting trying to strike that balance of winning auctions, but not winning so many to where I was gym poor. Right. But then also trying to use money, but not spending all my money where I ran out of money. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's a good balance there. I thought mm-hmm. in the blotter, I really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, I agree totally. I will say though, I do worry a little bit about the black gem spots. So in the rules, I did mention that there were spots where you can just put gems on there. They're not spent, but if you just make sure you allocate Mm -hmm. gems to those locations, you'll get that action for sure. And I don't know. I can see why he did it, I guess, because it kind of gives you something every round, but I feel like mechanisms like that take the teeth off of games that I'm really looking for. To me, the funnest part of the game was trying to win the first place auctions and just having those safety net spots where it's like, well, if I don't win these auctions, at least I can throw two gems on here and I know I'll get a wild token and it's okay. I don't know. You're a masochist. I am. (laughs) And I know that. I hope people know that about me by now. Anything that lessens tension or gives you an escape route or a pressure release valve where it takes the pain away a little bit is a negative for me. That, that might not be a negative for some people, but I didn't like that that was there. 
I will say, in the games that I've played, we had some that it was real easy to get to be jewel poor, and it was real easy to be money poor, yes. just depending on how the... The randomness of how it came Exactly. Out. And so, to me, having those spots kind of alleviated some of that pain points, I guess, in both those kinds of games, at least to mm-hmm. me. Because you could at least have some sort of safe spot to say, okay, I'm going to be at least functional there. It felt like it gave momentum, where sometimes it may feel like I was crawling through glass if it didn't have it. Okay. A lot about the blotter. I think we would be remiss if we at least don't mention the upper half of the board. Oh, yeah, for sure. The locations of influence. So just to reiterate, just so it's clear, these locations have two purposes. The main one being their points, Mm -hmm. right? You get these tokens from spots in the blotter so that you can put meeples on the locations to score points. But they also give you benefits depending on what houses you choose to go to. How did y'all feel about this part of the game? I wish this part of the game was different, if I'm honest. Everything that you're trying to accomplish on the bottom board, I was wanting that to feel more meaningful than what it did. Mm. It felt like, oh, I'm just going to get as many tokens as I can on the bottom half, and then I'm just going to go where I can on the top half of the board. Because everything is more or less the same point value. Almost all the spaces there are worth five points. With the exception of like two out of the 16, I think they're worth six points, and two that are worth seven points. Which is not that huge of a swing. And so it felt like it was probably more efficient for me to just get as many tokens as I could possibly get. Forget trying to plan and get this special ability because I know it's going to make a huge difference. It's like, I'm just going to get as many tokens as I can and dump them on the board and get as many goons out on the board as I can to get the five points. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah I see, know. I think I might differ slightly with you on that. I do agree with you. I have concerns about the top half of the board. I really do. It worries me. But... I don't think I'm as loose about the top half of the board as you are. When I played the game, was very deliberate about trying to acquire certain tokens early because I feel like there might be, okay, and I'm going to emphasize that, there might be an optimal path through this upper half of the board that I think is just stronger than everything else. Specifically, there is a building that gives you a neighborhood token every round. Now, these neighborhood tokens, I didn't talk about them a lot in the rules, but they supplement your points pretty significantly. This building is the most valuable building in the whole district area, and I don't think you can debate that, just from a points standpoint, Mm -hmm. right? Then right below that is a building that gives you a red card. To me, those first two plays, if you're able to get them, are just no-brainers, in my opinion. And I did that every game I played this, and I won every time I played this. It just seems dominant. And I've seen this in other games before. I think I mentioned to you, Jason, you know, there's a game we used to play a lot, Kingsburg, Mm -hmm. which is different to this game a lot. But Kingsburg has that player board where you can influence certain buildings to get certain upgrades. And it's static. It doesn't change from game to game unless you have the expansion. And this is similar. The layout of those buildings doesn't change or benefits don't change. It's the same to game to game. And I feel like that I'm concerned that I would just continue to play this game the same way every time. That's interesting, because what I thought was the most two valuable boards on there, there was one that gives you one extra gem, and then the one right below that gives you two extra gems. Yes. And so 
those were my first two because I always felt like I was gym tight so that I could outbid for the tokens for my next round that I could get up there. So mm-hmm. that was certainly my first round. But I kind of agreed with what Jason was saying. For me, by the end of the game, I just felt like having the most of those buildings was the way to win the game. So just getting the most tokens on the bottom half was the strategy. Just indiscriminately. Indiscriminately. Just grab them as much as you right. can. It's certainly after the second turn, maybe. It just didn't matter anymore. Yeah, and I will preface that again by saying, I think, I I don't know if I've played it enough to be sure how I feel yet, but I worry about about it. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I took those two spaces right off the bat and lost to Bill in one of the games that we played. Well, that doesn't really mean anything. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) All right, so move on to final thoughts from Mafio Zoo. Let's do it. All right, Chris, kick us off. All right. I think you can probably tell from what I just said just a minute ago, I'm conflicted about this game. I wish I could have played it more. I played it four times. We try to play at least three, so I feel good about that. But I worry. I don't know. I'm conflicted. I worry about it. Are you on the fence? I'm on the Well, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I'm just not sure. I'm always hesitant to talk about dominant strategies because I know these games are play-tested hundreds of times, and I feel like it's very bold whenever we say, I think there's a dominant strategy here because, you know, in a limited number of plays versus being play-tested numerous times by hundreds of people, I don't know. But I did find that I was following similar paths on the top of the board, and it was working out for me. Mm-hmm. So take that what you will. I do think the bottom half of the board, the blotter, is interesting enough for me to want to keep this game and keep exploring it because I did Mm -hmm. find that auction part fun, especially the ones where you had to win. Mm -hmm. I enjoy that part. The release valve, black gem spots were just kind of plus minus. I could do without them, but it wasn't enough for me to dislike the game. So all that to say, I'm going to give it a four. I did like it. I just like it with a few concerns that I hope aren't realized on Mm -hmm. future plays. But we'll see. I'll say I really enjoyed my place. I mean, maybe it's because I won and was playing with Jason. And that, that <laughs> it always good. helps. Right. <laughs> but, but the first one that I played, I strongly felt that Jason should have won as I was watching him pull I'm in. pretty sure you just cheated or something. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> yeah, figuring out the points or whatever. I did like the interplay with the upper and lower boards. But in the second play, like Jason said, I stopped targeting specific houses. I didn't feel like I got to have this house plan or this revolver to get the house that I needed because... If I just made a broad spectrum grab for everything, you could get Godfather tokens that were wild cards. So you could generally get the house that you wanted anyway, or it just make that much difference. And I felt by the end of the game, really, in our place, the person who had the most houses up there won the game, or at least you had the same number of houses, and then it transferred over to the neighborhood tokens. Yes. And so that was the tiebreaker. And that was my experience in most games, is most people usually influence the same number of houses, and it came down to influence tokens. Right. Which is why I felt like that one house was so strong, because you just get one at the start of your turn every round, right? So Yeah, no, and and that's probably the case. I I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Anyway, my only concern is I think it could conceivably be samey over the time, although flipping over the tokens, I think, where we stressed the... The influence tokens versus the money made very different plays. And that part was pretty good. Anyway, uh, all that to say, I like the game, and I'm going to give it a four as well. Nice. Interesting. I'll say this is a tale of two halves of the board for me. I think the bottom half of the board, I really enjoyed the puzzle 
I'm a fan of area control. This is bidding slash area control, but yeah, I enjoyed that part. I think the spatial puzzle is cool of moving the gems around. Where do you move them? How far do you move them? The different types of wind conditions is interesting. I just wish that all of the effort that you were putting into on that bottom half of the board fed into a more interesting puzzle. Yeah. I think the upper half of the board is meant to be all oh, this dynamic and figure out how to build your engine. It just never really, it never really becomes that. It's always just get as much stuff as you can on the bottom of the board and do what you can at the top. And even the neighborhood tokens felt a little bit like an afterthought of like, mm-hmm. oh, we'll just get this extra thing that's just worth a point. Maybe if you can make a set or you have the most of them, you get an extra single point. I never felt myself being able to really strategize around that. Sure, you try to diversify your tokens and get a set, whatever. But most people manage to be able to do that once. Most people end up having the exact same number of goons out on the board at the end of the game, with the exception of one game, Bill, where you had like two more than everybody else. I don't know. Again, I think you're cheating. I, I, <laughs> I, I did have two, three token tokens. You got like or nine goons out on the board. I don't even think that's possible. So. <laughs> Slide of hand. Anyway. All that to say, I enjoyed the bottom half, but the top half just didn't interest me. I felt like the first couple games, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I'm like trying to figure out how to build an engine. By the time we played like our fourth game, I was like, all right, I'm just going to enjoy the puzzle on the bottom and whatever happens, happens. And I found myself not really caring much anymore. And so I think that's kind of the hallmark for me of a three. Mm. I don't own this game and I don't have a super strong desire to go out and find it. Mm. And so... That, for me, I think has to fall in the three category. I would play it again, sure, because the puzzle on the bottom is enough to make me not hate it. But yeah, it just didn't grab me. So yeah. A three for me. Interesting. You know, I think you said this, Jason, and I agree. This just intrigues me to want to try Louis the Fourteenth. I've not played that one. That's kind of a hole in my game playing career. And like I said, Louis the Fourteenth is in the 800s on mm. BGG, while this one's in the 5000s. And they don't seem like they're that different. Why is that one so much more well-liked? I don't know. I'm curious, for sure, to try. It's older. So it came out... I don't know when it came out. 2005. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that explains some of it, probably. Because at the time, when it came out, it was probably revolutionary, right? Or just very different from anything else that was out there. And nobody's played it recently to drag it down, I guess? Well, maybe. Yeah. Um, Or maybe the reprint just didn't get as much visibility. I don't know. There's probably a, a bunch of factors, right? But... Yeah, I'm curious to try it too. Like I said, I did look up the rules to see how much different it is. And really, the only difference is those cards. Mm-hmm. The abilities seem different and you, you acquire them in a different way, yeah. which I almost think would be a benefit. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. For sure. All right. Well, if any of this sounds interesting, you might want to give Mafioso a try. <laughs> <laughs> there are several copies available on Noble Knight. 22 gems their discount code you can get it at noble knight and there are also 10 copies available on the bgg marketplace all right well those are our final thoughts on mafiozu mafiozu <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you so much for joining us on this episode of hidden gems if you're enjoying what we're doing on the podcast and we hope that you are Please remember that it's a huge help to us when folks like yourselves give us a rating or a review on the various podcast platforms out there, or when you follow us on social media. If you're so inclined, please consider supporting the show over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash hiddengemspodcast. Check out the BGG Guild if you'd like to interact with us or share a game that you feel is a hidden gem. Until next time, I'm your host, Jason. This is Chris. This is Bill. Thanks for listening.
This episode of Hidden Gems, number 36, was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on July 18th, 2022. Ghidorah. You've heard about him. Now it's time for you to hear from him. Join us again in three weeks when we have on our BGG Guild manager, Ghidorah, and we jointly review a trio of games from polarizing board game designer, Leo Colabini. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yachlef. Our Board Game Geek Guild is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member, Ghidorah. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist, Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at hiddengems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at boardgamegeek.com, guild number 3874. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems, and until next time, fellow gem seekers, enjoy your games and enjoy your search. Yeah, I don't know. I was like, well, it's like you're looking at me like I'm supposed to yeah, have a star building. How was DC? Just, just talk. <laughs> I thought there was an intro. Oh, well, I missed you guys. It seems like it's been forever since I've been here. No, no, no we're, we're joking. I thought you were kidding. Like, oh my god, you guys. <laughs> I really do have to do the intro. That's what I thought. It's like, wait a minute. It has been a long time. Oh, man. Hidden Gems, episode 36. Fun with Anthropology. <laughs> <sighs> we haven't had a we haven't had a Chris crack up session oh, at the beginning man. of the episode in a so while. Funny, I think it was the last time was tasty morsels. <laughs> tasty morsels. <laughs> tasty morsels. Oh, this is a good one. All right, <clears throat> I'm good. Mm-hmm.